pray with me, church family? Father, as we just sung, we want to turn our eyes to Jesus this morning. To you, we turn our eyes, our glory, our prize. Father, thank you for Christ. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning in our text in Genesis chapter 20. We don't want to miss what you have intended for us, and so I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. Father, I pray that that as we unpack this text, that it would be helpful for us as we go into our week, that we would see the seriousness of sin, but also see that you are the hero once again in Genesis. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church family, our text this morning is Genesis chapter 20. While you're turning there, I want to propose a question to you. Do you believe that God is intricately at work in your life? Do you believe that God is intricately at work in your life? So much so that the very details behind the scenes are orchestrated to carry out God's plans and purposes. I think this is where our human brains are so, so inadequate because God's ways are so much higher than, than our ways. And not only do we forget that, but we often are completely unaware of that. And we're unaware of how God is involved in everything that takes place. We, we go about our life, we go about our way, and his plans of redemption are unfolding all around us, whether we realize it or not. Sometimes we are able to look back and it's clear what the Lord is doing. We can say, yeah, the Lord was was at work in this way. Other times we look back and we'll never know. We aren't able to completely see and we'll only find out one day when we're with the Lord and we have to throw our hands up in complete trust that the Lord knows what he's doing even though we can't see it in that moment. What I love about scripture is that we often do get to see how God is at work, particularly in Genesis as we're following along we come across texts and we look back and say, oh yeah, I see. I see what the Lord is doing there. I see how he's at work. We catch the details. Often the details that the biblical characters completely miss along the way. What's so funny about this is our, is our instinct uh, when we read these accounts is to want to shake these biblical characters and say, come on, man. Like, come on, Abraham. Like, what are you doing? How did you miss this? But hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We can look back and we can see what the Lord is doing and, and want to shake these biblical characters. I'm sure that if we had, particularly for me, I know for me, if there was stories written about my life and you guys read it, you would want to shake me oftentimes. Certainly the sinfulness of God's people in Scripture is highlighted, but we're always able to piece the story together and see how God is at work behind the scenes, see, see what the Lord is doing amidst difficult situations, see what the Lord is doing amidst the sin of of his people, even. We're able to say, yeah, I I know what the Lord is doing there. I see how God intervened. I know why that detail happened, because otherwise his plan for redemption would look differently if that specific thing didn't happen, if he didn't step in and intervene in that way. And we begin to see how he's intricately involved in the details of life and intricately involved in, in how he carries out his plan for redemption. I think probably the most well-known example of this is at the end of Genesis when uh, Joseph is standing before his brothers 
and he's explaining to them the providence of God about how what they meant for evil, uh, God meant for good. What they meant for evil by selling him as a slave, throwing him in a pit, God meant it for good. God was allowing the sinful actions of his sinful brothers to uh, not derail the promise of a Messiah. He wasn't going to allow the sinful actions of, of the brothers to derail his promises. Despite the sinful acts of his brothers, he preserves, God preserves Jacob's family amidst famine, uh, which then preserved the line of Christ. And so God's plan of redemption through Christ, it's like a train headed down a track toward its destination that cannot be stopped. There's nothing that go, is going to stop God's plans and purposes. There's nothing going to, that's going to stop his promises and so that, that account at the end of Genesis is probably the most, mo- most well-known to us, but there are examples of this all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout Scripture, where the sinfulness of humanity looks like it's about to derail the promises of God to which God steps in in his sovereign power to rescue sinners, and then he proceeds to fulfill his promises in those moments. This is what's happening in Genesis chapter 20. God's promise is, is jeopardized by the sinfulness of Abraham, uh, and, and even Sarah, who seems to be complicit with Abraham's schemes and, and Abraham's lies. Here in chapter 20 of, of Genesis, we're nearly nine months away from Abraham and Sarah's promised son being born. Okay, so next week, we're going to be in Genesis 21, and, and we're going to be reading about this. We're, Sarah even could be pregnant now, or she's, she's about to become pregnant any, any day now. And Abraham and Sarah get so close to nearly messing everything up. But as the main point of the chapter shows us, the sinfulness of man cannot derail the promises of God. The sinfulness of man cannot derail the promises of God. The sinfulness of Abraham, the sinfulness of me, the sinfulness of you cannot derail God's promises. And he's at work at all times, behind the scenes, making sure that his promises are always kept. So if you would join me as we read Genesis chapter 20 together. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in this place. 
and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, through not, the, not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right. So now the first thing that you're thinking when you read Genesis chapter 20, that you want to shake Abraham, right? You want to shake him. What's he doing? Here we have another account where Abraham is lying about Sarah being his sister. Okay, you might think, hey, didn't, did you mess up, Will? Didn't Donald already preach a sermon on this? Uh, yes, he did preach a sermon similar because there's a separate account in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham, Abram, in fact, does the same thing in front of Pharaoh in Egypt. So Abram stands before uh, Pharaoh and he lies about Sarai being his sister and then God judges Pharaoh with plagues. Genesis chapter 12. This is obviously a sinful pattern in Abraham's life, his fear of man, his lack of love for his wife, among other things, lying, excuse-making, inability to fight for purity in his marriage, and so on. What's so heartbreaking about this is that while we do have two accounts of this in Genesis, maybe in a period of about 25 years, Genesis 12, and then now Genesis 20, Abraham hints at something in verse 15 that's, that's devastating. He's, verse 15, um, he hints that there could have been other times when he does this as well. In verse 13, he says, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And so, yeah, we have two instances where we just want to shake him and say, Abraham, what are you doing, man? But he implies this could have been, there could have been several instances. This was a pattern in his life. When he got scared, he would stand before a king or stand before a king and say, she's my sister. This is a sinful pattern. This is a, um, a gross and ungodly pattern of sin. And I think Moses wants us to connect the two accounts to see that it's a pattern here. This is clear in, in the very first verse because all it says is this, and he sojourned to Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. He doesn't go into all the details that he did in chapter 12. He just says, and Abraham said of Sarah, uh, she is my sister. In chapter 12, he's clear that he thinks the Egyptians will kill him and take Sarah for themselves if they know that they're married. But this time, he just says, she's my sister, because Moses is wanting us to connect the two, this pattern of sin, not trusting the Lord, as he sojourns from place to place, not protecting his wife from participating in a polygamous relationship. I think right out of the gate, the text makes clear this first point. point. Be aware of your sinful patterns. Be aware of your sinful patterns. You have pre-covenant Abram, okay? And uh, he lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister to protect his own skin in Genesis chapter 12. 
Now you have post-covenant Abraham, who is lying about Sarah, being a sister, standing before Abimelech. This is after Genesis 15, okay? So it reminds us of the sinfulness of Abraham and the sinful patterns that he has in his life. Abraham's been rescued by God out of the hands of Pharaoh in the first instance when he lies about Sarah being his wife in Genesis chapter 12. And then in Genesis chapter 14, you have, you have Abraham who's saddled, who saddled up as a warrior king and, he, and, and God defeats all of these armies in Genesis 14. And then in Genesis chapter 15, you have God making a covenant with him and then he shows up here in Gerar and he crumbles after all that the Lord has done for him time and time again. He forgets the faithfulness of the Lord. He forgets the promises of the Lord. And he falls into the same sinful patterns. Lying, protecting himself. After the Lord has pulled him out time and time again. But along with it being a pattern, I think that the gravity of this needs to be mentioned too. Because this is after Genesis 15, after God makes a covenant with him. Because it's not just that he lied or that he feared man. There's something that's different about this than Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was not trusting in the covenant promise that God made with him. This is definitely part of what Moses is, is communicating right here. He's assuming we know the account of Genesis 12 And he's letting us know this is post-covenant. This is after Genesis 15. This is after Abraham knows what the Lord has promised to do. Remember the covenant in Genesis 15 has three parts. We'll review those really quick. First, offspring. God, God promises Abraham a great nation, which would begin with Abraham having a son. Second, land. When, when Abraham left his homeland, God promised him a new land, which would, we find out later is, is Canaan. And then third, universal blessing, or in other words, God's promise that his blessing would extend beyond Israel and reach all of the nations, the entire world. Each of these components of the promise are important in Genesis 20, so keep them in mind. Particularly, we'll look at them more extensively in chapter 21 next week. But understand this, by doing what he's doing again, Abraham's taking the covenant into his own hands. All those things that God has promised him, he's taking it into his own hands. He's ultimately saying, hey, I know God promised me a nation. I know God promised me land. I know God promised me blessing, but I don't know that that's actually going to happen. As he's standing here in front of Abimelech, he's forgetting the promises of God. But remember this, God isn't going to let Abraham's sinfulness derail his promises. He intervenes. God is the hero once again, and he's intricately at work behind the scenes and is going to fulfill his end of the covenant. Even though Abraham doesn't trust that he's going to do that, and Abraham, even though Abraham doesn't uphold his end, with this promise that God makes to Abraham in mind, uh, uh, think of this. By letting Sarah go with Abimelech, not only is he violating God's design for marriage, not only is he violating God's design for manhood, but he was jeopardizing the promise in Genesis chapter 15. Here we are on the brink, as I mentioned earlier, of Isaac being born, 
of the promised son being born. Maybe she's even pregnant now or going to be pregnant in the coming days. And if Sarah would have, in fact, would have slept with Abimelech in this moment, there'd be reason to question whether or not Isaac was, in fact, Abraham's promised son. It could have been another situation like Ishmael. Was Isaac Abraham's son or is Isaac Abimelech's son? And so we realize here that the sinful pattern of of lying and fear of man and lack of love for his wife was ultimately, it was unbelief in the promises of the Lord. And there could have been grave consequences here. This is post-covenant. Abraham knows at this point that God is going to give him a great nation. And so Abraham is saying, I don't believe God. I don't believe that he's going to give me this great nation. So rather than guarding his marriage and fighting for the purity of Sarah, he seeks to protect himself. In fact, this is unbelief. This is a very definition of sin itself. Unbelief in the promises of God and in his character. In similar moments to Abraham, we too, we've too failed to believe God. And we turn to believe ourselves and what we think is best for our lives and, and what we should do rather than turning to what God says is what's best for for our lives. We're honest with ourselves. We're constantly fighting against this unbelief. This is why as Christians, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day to battle against this, to fight against this. Because we so often doubt that God knows what is best for us. I think we should let verse 2 of this passage be a warning to us that we're prone to sinful patterns which require self-awareness to combat against them. Ask yourself, what areas in your life have become patterns of sin, ongoing patterns of sin? Are you actively turning to the Lord and the power of the gospel to combat those patterns? Christian, when you become aware of these sinful patterns, it's a first, this is a great, wonderful first step. Remember the promises of God in these moments, that there is no condemnation for you, for you are in Christ Jesus. It's an example of a promise that you can use to combat, combat this unbelief. And then look to the power of the gospel to change you and to transform you. Fight against the patterns of unbelief with belief in the gospel. Remembering the gospel and what Christ has done for you through taking on your sin and forgiving you and giving you his righteousness. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham believing the promise would have been him standing before Abimelech and saying, she's my wife. Trusting the Lord with the outcome. Because if he was in fact killed, then the promise wouldn't have been fulfilled, would it have? And so because God always keeps his promises, he could have stood right there before this king and said, she's my wife. And God would have delivered him just like he did with Pharaoh And we see that he does. We see that the Lord intervenes. But let Abraham's sin here, this pattern of sin, be an example for us. Let it be a warning to us. Alongside the awareness of the sinful patterns, this passage makes it incredibly clear that God keeps us from our sinful potential as well, which is our second point today, that God keeps you from your sinful potential. 
This takes us back to the promise. This is something we touched on briefly. Abraham lied. He didn't love his wife as he was called to love her and fight for her purity. He feared man. But what he didn't know is that if this sin, if left untouched, it would have jeopardized the promise. He was nearly nine months away from his son being born, and he would have derailed it all apart from the grace of God. And so you also have Abimelech, who without intervention from the Lord, would have also been guilty of the same thing. He would have been guilty of adultery. And so the sinful potential is implied to be far worse than what actually is carried out, what actually happens. Here in Genesis chapter 20, the the ramifications of these acts are huge, and the consequences are really broad. But as always, God enters. He intervenes. He's the hero of the text. He rescues everyone in the text from their sinful potential. Let's, let's kind of walk through the, this, the, the events here. The text tells us that Abimelech takes Sarah in verse 3. And then it, uh, immediately following that, it says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. Okay, so he, he takes Sarah. God appears to him in a dream. Think about this. God is speaking to a Canaanite king to protect him from committing adultery and derailing the covenant promise. Think about the kindness there. The kindness of the Lord that he appears to a pagan king. He could have struck him down. But in the kindness, he appeared to him in a dream and says, behold, you're a dead man because of whom you've taken. Church family, we know that the consequences of our sin is death. Sodom and Gomorrah, last week, it proved that. It proved that the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 tells us, because fire and sulfur came raining down on the city. We know that God cast out the angels immediately when they rebelled, which raises the question, why didn't Abraham, why didn't Abimelech, Abraham, Sarah, all these involved, why didn't they die on the spot here for the rebellion? Why don't you and I die on the spot amidst our rebellion? In this particular instance with Abimelech, it's what we call God's common grace for all humanity. That sinful humans can live in this, in this earth that God created and not be struck down immediately. This is common grace that people have a moral conscience that keeps them from their sinful potential. Because if we look around, we see glimpses of this, don't we? You have rejection of God in our culture regarding gender and sexuality. You have murders that take place all around us. You have abuse that happens. You have nations in turmoil. You have assassinations and oppressive leaders. All this is horrible. And as Christians, we should speak out against these things as sin. Sin is rampant. And we get glimpses of how bad it can actually be. We get glimpses of the sinful potential of humanity when we just do something as simple as check the news. But let's be clear, church family, that the monstrous behavior is a result of sin. It's a result of living in a broken and fallen world that we read about in Genesis 3.15. But dare not we say that apart from the intervention of God, this could not be us. Our sinful potential, potential is far greater than we know. But in the Lord's kindness, for those who are in Christ, you've been rescued. You are a new creation. You've been lavished grace, saving grace upon you. through Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, let me just say that the Lord's common grace has also been given to you and and keeps you from your sinful potential. 
But let me say that apart from repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, you're under God's wrath. And so respond in faith before it's too late. I invite you to do this today. Think about the seriousness of your sin and the potential of your sin and turn to Christ. And Christian, think about the seriousness of your sin. Think about your sinful potential and rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Let's continue walking through this account of how the, of how the Lord is, is stepping in and how he's involved in upholding his promise. Moses, the author, makes it very clear to us that Abimelech did not approach Sarah. Okay, that's intentional. There will be no question moving forward that Isaac, that Isaac will be Abraham's son. So God speaks to him in a dream. Abimelech immediately responds with a posture of fear and negotiation when he finds out what's taking place. If you remember correctly, last week, we see Abraham do something similar on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah when he's speaking to God and he says, will you, will you destroy them if there's 50 or 40 righteous or, or 30 or 10? Abimelech does something similar here. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? To which he then goes on the defense and he begins to defend himself and say, hey, Abraham told me she's my sister and she said he's my brother. Not only did I not touch her, but they lied to me. So, so why, would, why would an innocent person die, God? You know, so he's negotiating with God and trying to cover for himself. And this is where the Lord's grace blows me away right here. God says in a dream, in the dream, verse six, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but catch this right here. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is, is rebuking Abimelech in this moment, just as Psalm 105 told us that he rebukes kings. He says, actually, hey, yeah, that, yeah you're innocent here, but like, actually, it's, it's not you, it was me. Remember last week we learned that there is none righteous, right? And so, hey, like, hey, actually, it was you. If it wasn't for me, you'd have yourself in a heap of trouble here. This is divine providence at work. God is the hero. He's stepping in, keeping his end to the covenant. Later in the chapter, it becomes clear that God made Abimelech and his household barren so that he literally could not approach Sarah. Sure, Abraham did, Abimelech didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife, but God is reminding him that it wasn't his goodness that caused him to avoid committing adultery, but actually the Lord's intervention and his protection of all who were involved in this account. There's nothing that Abraham, that Sarah, that Abimelech can do that would derail God's promise in Genesis chapter 20. If you remember when Bill read Psalm 105, uh, we, uh, we learned about how God's people were sojourning around Canaan from one kingdom to another, and then we read this, he allowed no one to oppress them he rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, Sarah. Do my prophets no harm, Abraham. Our minds should go directly to Genesis chapter 20 here when we read Psalm 105. Abraham and Sarah are surgeoning from nation and nation, from kingdom to kingdom, and he rebukes Abimelech for the sake of remembering his promise. Verse 8 of Psalm 105 says, he remembers his covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. The psalmist has this account in Genesis 20 in mind as he's writing. 
Sure, Abraham can break his end of the covenant, as he has done many times. But God never will. And along the way, his kindness keeps sinful humanity from their monstrous potential. He keeps you and me from our monstrous potential. Like a spark that can turn into a wildfire. So our sin can be far greater than we could ever imagine that it could be if it wasn't for the Lord's kindness to us. Church family, as I was preparing the sermon this week, I was struck by Genesis 20, verse 6. Out of all the verses in the chapter, I couldn't help but coming back to chapter, or to verse 6. It was I who kept you from sinning. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Sin has its consequences. This is something that we know. This is something that we experience. And we see that these consequences could be far greater than we know when we read a verse like that. But the Lord intervenes in his, in his providence and keeps me and you from our sinful potential. I know that there are countless occasions in each of our lives that the, that the kindness of the Lord keeps us from sinning. Maybe we're aware and we rejoice in that. Maybe we're, we're unaware at times. We're unaware of the grave consequences that might have followed had not the Lord intervened. This is in no way to, to minimize the seriousness of the sin and the consequences of the sin that we, that we do commit. But it reminds us that we are far more, more sinful than we could ever realize. The potential is there. Just flip back one chapter and we see it. The potential is there in each and every one of our lives. We're totally depraved human, human beings. We're, we're totally sinful. It's, it's a part of our nature. It's a thought of our, part of our thoughts. It's a part of our desires, our actions, everything about us apart from Christ. But let me say that this must drive us to Christ when we think about this sort of thing, when we think about our sinful patterns, when we think about our sinful potential, rather than saying, all right, come on, Will, it wasn't that bad before Christ. I didn't need to change that much. Be careful here. Understand that your sin, that your depravity, and consequences of death for that depravity are far greater than you know. And stand in awe in this moment, when you get to this point. Stand in awe of this moment of Christ who paid for your sins, paid for them in full. That they were nailed to the cross and that upon repentance and faith in him, we bear them no more. And so we can say praise the Lord because of that. Alongside the seriousness of our sin, we have to remember this grace. We have to remember, remember this kindness, which is the third point of the day, that there is grace offered for sinful people. Be aware of your sinful potential. Or be aware of your sinful patterns. Your sinful potential is, is far greater than you can know the grace that's offered for sinful people is far greater than we know as well. Here, in Abimelech, here Abimelech is thinking he's a dead man. He's negotiating with God for his life. And God says, actually, it was I who kept you from sinning. But verse 7 begins to tell us the outcome of this account. Is going to die or live? Well, verse 7 tells us, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Take note of that so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. The Lord makes it clear that if Abimelech 
doesn't return Sarah, he'll die. If he does return Sarah, he'll provide a way out. This all happens in the dream. But as soon as he wakes up, in verse 8, he gets moving, right? He and his servants, uh, they, 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 start, they start moving. They start, they're on top of this. They realize they've got to do something. They've got to return Sarah. They feared the Lord, which is fascinating because this actually shows that Abraham's assumption at the very beginning that they didn't fear the Lord was all wrong. So he could have stood there and he could have, could have said, she's my wife, and they would have feared the Lord and, and, and they wouldn't have done what they did. But then you have Abimelech who calls out Abraham for putting his kingdom in this position, putting him and his kingdom in this position. And then Abimelech begins to, uh, to give him gifts. He gives, him, he gives Sarah back. He begins to lavish him with gifts and land and all sorts of treasure. And this is where the moment of truth comes. Because he returns Sarah and he gives him all these gifts. But remember when God said to Abraham was a, was a prophet, verse 7. Remember when he said that? And if he returned Sarah, Abraham would pray for him and he would be saved. He would intercede. He would step in for Abimelech. This is a, 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 this is a prime example of, uh, of what's happening here in Genesis, earlier in Genesis 12, where, where God says that I will bless those who bless you. So when Abimelech fears God, returns Sarah, lavishes Abraham with gifts, the moment of truth comes. Abraham prays. And the Lord heals Abimelech. Abimelech lives in that moment. The Lord blesses him by healing him and allowing him to live. Abraham intercedes, meaning he steps in on behalf of Abimelech. He prays for his healing, to which God answers that prayer. This is actually the first time in Scripture that uh, someone is labeled a prophet in this way, given the label of a prophet. Uh, the, new the New Dictionary for Biblical Theology, um, I came across this as I was studying this week. It says that this particular reference to a prophet in Genesis 20 suggests that a prophet has a special relationship with God whereby his prayers will be answered. So, so far in Genesis, we have Abraham functioning as a king where he goes to battle and he, and he delivers people, leading his people to victory, rescuing Lot. And now we have him as a prophet functioning as a prophet. And, and, and a lot of his role here, as I was reading through this, he's functioning as a priest as well. He's interceding. He's stepping in on behalf of half of, half of Abimelech. He's stepping in on behalf of Abimelech and Abimelech's people. And this is a reminder of the undeserving grace of, of God for Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham falls so short of the title of prophet. And yet the Lord heals this Canaanite king due to Abraham's stepping in, due to Abraham's prayers, due to his intercession. The way that Abraham is functioning in his verses should be clear in its foreshadowing. While Abraham fell far short of his title of prophet, Jesus did not. Jesus is king, Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and he fulfills these titles perfectly. In particular, as intercessor, Jesus steps in on behalf of hellbound sinners. He steps in on behalf of you and me. He goes to the Father. He lives a perfect life. He went to the cross. He went to the grave only to rise again so that all who would trust in him would live. 
This is foreshadowing Christ. This is pointing us to Christ, how Abraham is functioning as a prophet and how he steps in on behalf of Abimelech. I hope you can see that and I hope it points you to Jesus. I hope you see the consistency of the character of God. I hope it's clear to you today that the sinfulness of man cannot derail the promises of God, that he always keeps his promises despite the sin of his servants. One pastor points out that the New Testament authors never highlight Abraham's sinful patterns in the Old Testament or his sinful potential, but rather they highlight his faith, right? You have Abraham mentioned in Romans and Galatians and of course in Hebrews, but not once does God put him in a list of all these messed up people, does he? He doesn't put him in a list and highlight his sin, does he? Always, it's in reference to his faith. The pastor points out how Abraham was, was praised for his faith when he left Ur for an unlimited promised land, how, how he, uh, he stayed in the lands amidst danger, how he believed God would actually give him a son, Isaac, how he was willing to offer up Isaac. Not once in the New Testament do we get a list of all the ways that Abraham lacked faith. And we know that there is plenty of times when he did. But be reminded in Genesis 20 that Abraham's righteousness is not due to his own righteousness. This is key. But it's due to the righteousness given to him by God. His righteousness was not earned, but his righteousness was given to him by God because there, there was a lot of unbelief there as well. We know as Christians that there is none righteous. We've touched on this. There is none righteous apart from Christ. As a church family, you are declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Unbeliever, let this drive you to Christ, who is your only hope for right standing before God. God doesn't speak of Abraham regarding his sinful patterns or his sinful potential. No, instead he calls him a prophet, as one who will go to God for Abimelech. You have to imagine Abimelech here. When God tells him, he's like, Abraham's this prophet, he's going to pray for you, and you're going to be healed if you return to Sarah. You can, you've got to imagine Abimelech's like, wait, like, wait, this guy? The guy who just lied to me? about his wife being his sister? Like, that guy who, who, who isn't being a man? Like, like this guy is going to intercede for me? I can imagine God thinking, yes, but not on behalf of his righteousness, but on behalf of, of my kindness and the righteousness that I have given him. We look at Abraham and we see his sinful patterns. We see his sinful potential. But God looks at Abraham and sees his righteousness. Abraham's sin did not change God's view of him after the covenant. He's still God's chosen prophet. He's still God's covenant partner. Church family, isn't it incredible to serve a God like this? One who lavishes grace upon messed up sinners like you and me, who are undeserving. Christ takes on your sin and gives you his righteousness so that he would say, she's mine. He's mine. Just as he said, Abraham's my prophet. Abraham's mine. This is a beautiful reality. At the beginning of our time, I asked the question, is God intricately at work in our lives? I pray that Genesis 20 helps answer that question for you. That he is at work amidst challenges that you face. In particular, that he's at work even amidst your own sin and my sin. Meeting you in your weakness and giving you grace to sustain you, looking at you based on the righteousness given to you by the work of Christ. 
so that we can say it was you who kept me from sinning, God. And you always keep your promises, God. Let's pray. Father, Genesis 20. We read it. And our initial reaction probably is to want to shake Abraham and say, what are you doing? But as we pour over this text, I'm reminded that that's, I'm reminded that that's me apart from Christ. And so thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that Genesis 20 points us to our weakness. And if anything, it shows us that our righteousness is not found on what we do, but on what Christ has done. And I pray that this text would remind us of our sin. It it would remind us, and, and, and as we remember our patterns of sin and our potential of sin, that we would run to the grace that you offer, that you lavish upon us, and that we would combat that unbelief with belief in what you've done. And that would change our week. That we'd preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over as we remember that we are far too like Abraham in this text. But you've never changed. You stay the same. Same God in Genesis 20 is the same God that we serve now. And so Father, help us to remember this. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.